Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 165. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to discuss the 2018 documentary Howard. This is by Don Hahn. We all know him. For, well, we know him for a lot of reasons. But in terms of documentaries, most people know him from Waking Sleeping Beauty. But the reason why we wanted to discuss Howard is because we are coming up on the 30th anniversary of Beauty and the Beast. And Howard Ashman played such a huge role in that film. It's only fitting that we lead into that discussion with a discussion of this film. Really, there is no Beauty and the Beast without Howard Ashman because prior to bringing him and Alan Menken onto the project, it wasn't even going to be a musical. At the time, the studio just didn't like where the film was going and they brought in Howard and Alan to save the project by adding the music. But we are going to discuss that next week when we review Beauty and the Beast, which is turning a sprightly 30 years old. Holy cow. Whether we want to admit it or not. Now, we were so excited to see this film when we saw it the first time. It's actually a great story how we ended up seeing this for the first time. Well, going back a little bit, longtime listeners of the show know how badly we wanted to see Waking Sleeping Beauty. Our old manager, when Sean and I were working at the radio station, had told us about it uh, because he had seen it at a Tribeca Film Festival. And he was like, oh, you guys would have loved it. And we were like, yeah, we would have. And we had no... Thanks for the invite. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and we had so much trouble tracking it down. We couldn't find it anywhere. And lo and behold, uh, we went on a cruise back in 2010. Funny enough, we ended up on the cruise because we couldn't afford to go to Disney at that point. Yeah. And uh, we were in our cabin and I saw what I thought was Little Mermaid. And then I heard a voiceover over a couple of the clips and I went, oh my God, Sean, I think this is the documentary. I think this is it. And sure enough, it was Waking Sleeping Beauty of all places. It was one of three movies that was playing on this cruise. And there was one night where we were just like, who cares? We're getting room service. We're going to watch the same, this whole movie from beginning to end because we were just catching it in bits and pieces. But we made a point to watch the whole thing and just fell in love with it. And then when we found out that Howard was being made, because in my opinion, that is the most interesting part of Waking Sleeping Beauty, other than the company almost falling apart. Um, you know, it's the most sad and, and really deep part of Waking Sleeping Beauty. Uh, you know, I was excited to find out that we were going to get more than just a slice of Howard's life in that film, a whole documentary dedicated to him. And when I found out that it was coming to Tribeca, I was like, absolutely not. We are not missing our chance to go and see this. And we were fortunate enough that the showing that we went to, the screening that we went to, Alan Hahn, Alan Hahn, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking New York sports. Don Hahn. I thought you were thinking Alan Menken because they it's, are so tied. I know. Truly. So Alan, I hope you're listening. Uh, thanks. Uh, but Don Hahn, he's at the screening, um, which was a great thrill for us because after they screened the film, he did a Q and A, but then he actually stuck around 
to meet people and speak with them. And Don Hahn, if you've ever had the opportunity to meet him, a lot of people will confirm this. He is so humble. For a man that has multiple Oscars, he is so humble. He's so gentle. He's so soft-spoken. And he's so appreciative of people that give him their time. You know what I'm saying? Like, we should be thanking him, but he is just as quick to thank you for giving you his time. So it was a great thrill being able to meet him that day. He was very much what you see is what you get. And I remember we knew he was going to stick around after the screening. So I thought that we had a pretty good shot at meeting him. And Sean is fearless. Like he will go talk to anyone about anything. Yeah, I don't care. And I don't typically get starstruck because having worked in radio, having worked in television, you know, it's part of the job. You can't, you can't get yourself worked up. You can't have a freak out in front of a celebrity because you're going to lose your job. So I know how to downplay it, but I remember you started walking up to him and we were with a friend and our friend actually had to nudge me to go even near him because I started shaking in my boots. I just got so starstruck and so nervous because not only is he a Disney icon, but when you think about it, you know, the Walt Disney Pictures is a huge company. And for me, meeting such a major player in Hollywood, even though he does Disney animated films, he's still a major Hollywood producer. And I started freaking out a little bit. It was a big deal. But once we did get a little bit of FaceTime with him, you mellowed out quick. Once you saw how approachable he was and how appreciative he was. And what'll, what I will never forget about that day was how... I mean, we just, at that point, had sat through 90 minutes of this documentary. In addition to having watched Waking Sleeping Beauty, and I feel like... There was so much more that Don Hahn wanted to say about Howard. Like, he just kept gushing over him when we were talking to him about what an incredible man he was, what an incredible talent he was, and the the lasting effect that he left on the world. Like, I feel like he could have gone on for another hour just talking about how much he loved Howard Ashman. Oh, and I would have listened. It was just, like, such an amazing moment. It was like a slice of life moment. And for two people that love Disney the way that we do, it was just so it was so wonderful to be able to share that moment with him and now relive it a couple of years later. Now, for those who have been with us for a while, you guys know that we always give you the plot of the film, right? But in this case, I mean, they tell the man's life story. And quite honestly, I'm not going to tell you the life story because that's the purpose of the documentary. So, Nor are we going to rate this. Yeah, correct. Does it hold up? Absolutely. The man's yeah. a genius. Spoiler alert. So, you know, go and watch the documentary. You know, at this point, instead of breaking it down, we're just, you know, giving you you know, the timeline, we're basically just going to launch right into it. This discussion is sponsored by Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. 
Okay, so, I mean, we just got over discussing that we saw this at the Tribeca Film Festival back in 2018. How do you feel about this opening with the title card that this is a Disney Plus original? Because I know Disney Plus picked it up basically right away. It was in the early, I don't think it was a launch day title. I think it was. No, we had to wait. We I think it was quite a, couple, a while. Yeah, it was at least a few months. How do you feel that they tagged this as a Disney Plus original? Um, I think it's fine because that's mostly how these things go. Um, usually at film festivals, at least the ones that are earlier on in the year, like a Sundance, and I well, Tribeca used to be earlier, early enough because it was in April, and now post pandemic, it's been in June, and I. Th- kind of think that that's the way it's going but a lot of times the reason that you have these film festivals is because studios and distribution are there to pick up films for their slate that's kind of how this whole thing works before film festivals got so big and you would be premiering these large movies like for example um in more recent history the sopranos prequel just premiered that was already a done deal it was already being distributed and then it kind of gives the film festival a little cachet to say that they're premiering such a big film. The way that it used to be was that you'd have all these indie films premiering and the distributors would be there watching the films to determine what their slate was and they would buy them. You know, and that that still does get done sometimes. Kevin Smith does it all the time. He bought his own film at a yep. film festival once in the biggest middle finger to Hollywood I've ever seen and I still... It, it's the best move ever. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't think that there was ever a chance this was going anywhere other than Disney+. Plus. But if they were playing by the rules and doing this by the books, then I guess you could argue that they picked it up for distribution after it premiered. Speaking of picking up, the style of filmmaking, this feels like we're picking up where we left off in Waking Sleeping Beauty. Now, it works in Waking Sleeping Beauty because you're cutting against animation. In your opinion, does it work here? I love how Don Hahn produces these films without talking head interviews because a lot of the times, if you don't have enough archival footage to cover it up you're locked on one person talking for a very long time. I mean, no documentary should should be produced like that where you're leaving somebody up on the screen to ramble on. You know, it's not a podcast. That's what right. the audio is for. Uh, but because they do have so much archival and animation, uh, you know, and just footage that they've shot from the making of these films... Um, they have more than enough material to cover it, but I just love how they really do paint a picture of an era and of a person's life because they're not taking us out of it with a, with a present day interview. It's all done in this case in the past because it takes us back to Howard's childhood and you know, you get a peek inside of his family life. So it really does do a good job of pulling you in and setting the scene. 
what I also love about the way this starts is that it is a lot like Waking Sleeping Beauty in that they start with the success story and then we sort of watch it unravel and find out what was going on. You know, in this case, Howard's success was skyrocketing and it's it's at a time when his life was declining. It's terrible. Yeah, it obviously, you know, anybody that knows the story of Howard Ashman knows that he died just short of his 41st birthday, a victim of of AIDS. Um and yeah, it it just it feels so much like the last documentary, but it worked in the last documentary and I I feel like it works in this one as well, particularly to pick up, you know, what you're talking about when they go all the way back to the beginning of Howard's life. Mm-hmm. And you see these photographs of him as a young boy with his sister, and his sister is giving the voiceover. And I think it's important when you have that family element here, because remember, we're not talking about a studio. We're talking about just him. And what I thought this accomplished early on as she's sort of revisiting and they had what I I believe was archival interviews with his mother as well they show you that as a young child how differently he viewed the world and how he would just create these alternate worlds in his bedroom and he would create a character for himself and he'd bring his sister in and he would tell her these stories and things that that he made with his toys. And he painted his cho- toys and changed them to be new characters so that they enhanced the story he wanted to tell. I mean, I mean, kids have an imagination, but most of the time it's, you know, you've got your G.I. Joe, so they're in battle. You know what I'm saying? You've got a Barbie doll, so she's in her Jeep with Ken, you know, whatever. It's so... Interesting that even at the young age that he was in these early home movies and photographs that his I mean, it's it's the mark of a genius when you just let your mind go so far to do it at at such a young age is just mind boggling. Absolutely. You can tell just in the way that his sister was speaking about him that his wheels were constantly turning from a young age. And it seems like he was the type of person who could just look at anything, the most simplistic thing, and turn it into something completely different. Um, To touch on what you said, too, you know, obviously they got Howard's family and friends from college and early colleagues to do the interviews, Uh, but I think the most striking one for me is is his mother. To hear her speak about him and to know that she outlived her son, it's really sad. And, you know, they don't really draw attention to that but you get hit with it so early on in the documentary because she's talking about his childhood and it just kind of it's just kind of a rude awakening to know that she had to bury a child. It's jarring that she is speaking about him in past tense. Yes. Um somebody that they really don't launch into an awful lot is his father. They talk about him a little bit. Um but it doesn't seem to me at least that he was completely unsupportive. I they had discussed that at one point his mom wanted to put him in dance lessons and the father was like no boys don't do dance but he, but his father was a creative himself 
you know, his sister tells a story about how she told him a joke once, and instead of reciting the joke, he turned he turned the joke into a story and put himself in the story. And his his mom was uh, she was a singer herself. So it's just the entertainment aspect and the creative influence. It just seems like he had it for his entire life. Absolutely, and I think that that's where his charisma comes from. Because when you see these old videos of Howard speaking, whether it's to one person or a room full of people, he is so charismatic. And he seems like he's going to be so quiet, but he's just very, very witty. He is. And you hear some, you hear some of the stories that he tells in interviews here, and they're the same stories and they're the same references that he makes when he's like doing a lecture with the Disney animators as they're preparing to work on Little Mermaid. You see that footage in Waking Sleeping Beauty. You see it here, but in, in particular, when he's talking, I think, about Ariel and pitching part of your world. Um, the What he tells them in that lecture is is the same exact thing he says in an interview in this film uh completely unrelated to little mermaid years before he was even working on it so to your point he is so authoritative when he discusses musical theater because he's he feels so strongly about it but he's so knowledgeable about it as well like he doesn't do it in a way where it feels like he's talking down to anybody or that he's telling anybody what to do per se but he just does it with such vigor and such enthusiasm you could just tell like this meant so much to him for his entire life absolutely I mean you're right he was very knowledgeable about it because he did go to college and then later grad school for theater I think he studied acting in college and then he went on to grad school for writing and direction uh so he really knows musical theater inside and out from all angles and you can tell when he's speaking about it. honestly so much of what I have learned about storytelling comes from just watching his interviews and that's where like for me personally aside from him having written the lyrics to my childhood that's where I feel the hit where you don't get to see his full body of work and and what it could be especially because when he was in grad school one of his uh old classmates who we stayed friends with she was a you know close personal friend throughout his life she was talking about how his production was the snow queen and everybody in their grad school wanted to be a part of it in some way because they knew, you know, of Howard's genius. And the Snow Queen, as we all know, is what Frozen was based off of. And that was an idea that was kicking around in Walt's time. So can you imagine if Frozen had come to life? And I'm not dis- disrespecting the Lopez's in any way, shape, or form because... If Howard Ashman and Alan Menken did Frozen, then maybe we don't get Let It Go. Maybe Idina was not cast. There is a whole ripple effect, but there is a big part of me that would love to see Howard Ashman and Alan Menken's version of Frozen with their music. Yeah, again, no disrespect to the Lopez's and no disrespect to that film. I mean, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. The, The saddest part about this documentary is that his life was cut short and so much of his genius 
was never realized. And it makes you wonder, had he lived, what would what would Disney as we know it be like today? Is there an Elton John and a Tim Rice? You know, probably not. I mean, you know, it's just so intriguing. Almost unfair to think on these terms, but, you know, Randy Newman the way that he wrote for Toy Story. What what are any of these films? Peter, uh, not Peter Gabriel, uh, uh, Tarzan. Uh, Phil Collins. Phil Collins. I was in Genesis. Phil Collins. <laughs> uh, what is Tarzan? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's it's such an intriguing look. And I, I we, we obviously can't live in that world. And I'm not saying I'm happy that we don't live in that world, but I kind of don't want to live in that world either. Like, I don't want to think about, like, what what is life like if we don't have You've Got a Friend in Me? You know what I'm saying? Like, Disney turned out just fine, but you just know there was so much genius left on the table. That's the hardest pill to swallow, other than the loss of a life. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that obviously that trumps everything, so put that aside. I think that's the hardest pill to swallow here. I disagree with you, though. I think his genius was fully realized. It was just cut short. I think Disney absolutely knew what they had because they knew he's a brilliant lyricist, but... He does know the company because early on in his career, uh, after college, just to make money to fund some of the shows that he wanted to do, he was working as an editor and uh, he got to do the book for the Mickey Mouse Club Theater. Um, and, And he loved that project because he loved Disney. And he got to go to Disneyland. I had no idea until we saw this documentary that that was a thing, that he was the editor of the Mickey Mouse Club uh, scrapbook. It's it's so, it's such an intriguing story, and because he's so rooted in Disney history, like, I feel like this should be a well-known fact. Right. And for some reason or the next, it kind of just gets glossed over. Right. Now, at this point, he's living in Manhattan. He had gone to Goddard, where he met Stuart White, and then they went off to Indiana on scholarship, they together were a pretty amazing team early on. They became a romantic relationship and went to New York together and started their own playhouse, uh, the WPA on Lower Fifth Avenue, when like nobody was doing anything on Lower Fifth Avenue. And this is where you, at least in the documentary, you kind of get a little bit of a pit in your stomach because we know how Howard died but the really upsetting thing is that they say that Stuart who was his partner in both business and personally said out loud that he didn't plan on living to 39 years old that's it's it's really scary when someone is just living on the edge so unapologetically knowing that there are other people in you know involved in your life it's i don't i don't want to be disrespectful and call it reckless but i mean it it sort of was and it's just startling to hear that somebody like howard who is so grounded and so smart i mean i guess the the creative energy that the two of them had together between writing and directing 
I guess that was enough to keep it going, at least for a time. But I thought that was pretty startling to hear. Especially because that was before anybody knew what AIDS was. I mean, even as AIDS started to spread, nobody really knew what it was and could fully comprehend it. But this was even before the outbreak. Yeah. He said he didn't think he was going to live past 39 just based on the amount of drugs and And the level of promiscuity that he was living. And that's why uh, Howard wanted to form the WPA theater with him was to save their relationship because things seemed to be going okay when they were in New York. And, you know, they're showing all these pictures from this time period in their life. And to me, I'm thinking of like struggling artists in New York. Not at all. They seem to be doing very well for themselves. And it seemed like they were happy, but there was obviously a lot going on behind the scenes that nobody was really privy to at that point. And Howard tried to, by keeping them together at work and having Stuart direct what he was writing, he thought that that was going to save their relationship. And unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And uh, it was a very bad breakup because their whole friend group, who were all the actors and the stagehands and people working with them, kind of had to pick the side like it was an ugly divorce. And it kind of seemed like most of them picked Howard because they said that they kind of just knew that his creative juices were flowing. He was such a genius. And the sad reality is that, I mean, other than passing away from AIDS in 1983, that as soon as Stewart broke away from Howard, that was basically the end for him. There was no career after that. And I mean, they, they don't hide that. And even Howard himself in, in an interview in archival audio had said this was a person that never worked a day in his life. So you know that it was definitely a tough breakup. And, you know, unfortunately, at least for a time, it was the hardest on Stewart, harder harder than it was on anybody else. Well, he was a self-destructive person. You know, I mean, it's a shame. And it's a shame that it didn't work out and they had to go through it. But, I mean, I think this is one of those cases where Howard certainly was better for it. For sure, because then he meets Alan Menken and the world changes. Right. Nothing is holding him back anymore. Um, To hear Alan Menken describe his first encounter with Howard is just so remarkable because he can remember every last detail about him from what he was wearing to him being unshaven. Uh, And you could tell from the moment they met, you just knew that there was magic. The fact that the two of them, at least for a time, knew how to push the right buttons on the other person and that their mantra was basically, don't leave the room without a good idea or a good song. Like, they were just so motivated and so driven. It's hard, especially for musicians, where people, they all have egos, I mean, they all do. When you have two people that are super creative, one in Alan Menken is writing songs for Sesame Street, and you have Howard Ashman that has his own theater, and, I mean, he's had some flops, but he's had some success. Sometimes when you butt heads, it's an ego thing, but it seems like there was never an ego problem between the two of them, and I think 
for two people that are so rooted in each other. I mean, Alan Menken has had a hell of a career since Howard's passing. He's been just fine. But, I mean, let's call it what it is. The, the two of them are just rooted together and will be forever. Absolutely. And that's where if you haven't watched this documentary yet, even if you think that documentaries aren't your thing, uh, it's worth it just to take a look at this to hear them singing their songs. Yeah, the demo tapes. Exactly. I mean, obviously, these are all the songs that we know and love. But when they were being pitched to Disney before they get approved to be in the film, it's just the two of them singing the different parts. It's so worth it just to hear that. And to hear them talk about the treatment for Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, for two people to to sit because Howard has this crazy idea that he's going to make a musical based on a sci-fi B movie that, as he had once said, falls apart in the second half. So he's just going to fix the problems that he thinks the movie has. And he calls Alan and goes, all right, let's do it together. I mean, it's just an amazing story and and that musical and the film have become so deep rooted in pop culture that to think that you know to 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 know that these guys were having that level of success that early is astounding it's crazy to think that this was their first time out working together and this is what we got out of it cuz i love little shop the music is just absolutely incredible the movie is so much fun. The cast is incredible. Um, but really, it, it just shows that it was like two supernovas coming together, that that was the result from their first time out, and that they just knew so intuitively how to work together. I also love in this section of the documentary, they have Howard talking about why he wanted to adapt Little Shop of Horrors. And... You know, it it's like you were talking about before, how he's so knowledgeable and so passionate about what he does. Uh, just the way that he speaks about what an adaptation is, because I feel like our generation now is so desensitized to all of these sequels and remakes. And we're getting, in, in some ways, we can't get enough Marvel, can't get enough Star Wars. And in other ways, we're kind of getting sick of the same thing over and over again. Um so I feel like it might be hard for people to relate to, but he speaks about adaptations and he's talking about how he wanted to do Little Shop because is it the best movie? No, but there were so many things that he enjoyed about it. He wanted to pull that and project it out into the world to show an audience what he liked about it. And that always strikes me because most of the time now it's all about ego. I want to make this movie again because I think I can do it better. And that was so not the case here. It's so strange, too, that after that, he does a musical adaptation of Smile, which is a movie that's based on beauty pageants. And, I mean, he meets Jody Benson, so with that, it's worth it. But it flopped and it got panned. But it's so odd and interesting at the same time that he kept... At, at least for a, for a small window, he, he kept trying to, like, do these B-movies and these cult classics and flip them from a cult classic into something that can be 
musical theater. And now you're starting to see it all the time because we've had the Spider-Man musical. You have a Back to the Future musical in London right now. You've got a Harry Potter musical. It, so many films are now just spam a lot, right? The films are just being turned into musicals. And uh, it's kind of intriguing that he sort of had his finger on the pulse all of those years ago. I also really love this section of the documentary because it humanizes him so much because we all know the Howard that's responsible for helping to save Walt Disney, Walt Disney animation. Uh, but, you know, like I said before, he moved to New York. He's not a struggling artist. Um, there was sort of an ebb and flow. I mean, he adapted to your point. He's adapting things into musicals that weren't before he adapted a Kurt Vonnegut novel into yes. a musical and Kurt Vonnegut came to see it. Yeah. And it's not even a very well-known novel. You know, it's not like he decided to do Slaughterhouse Five. Right. Uh, but he had success with that. He had success with Little Shop off Broadway so much so that he was able to go rent a summer house in East Hampton. So, you know, he's doing okay for himself. And yes, then smile hits and it flops, which was really surprising because Howard was working with Marvin Hamlish on Smile. And that's no disrespect to Alan Menken, although who knows if Alan Menken was on it, maybe it wouldn't have flopped uh, because their story sense is so strong. But Marvin Hamlish was already very accomplished at that point, and he did not take the loss so well. No, but it's not long until they bounce back because now Little Shop is made into a film and David Geffen helped produce it. It was his company behind it that helped put it together. And da and I didn't know this. David Geffen is the one that tells Jeffrey Katzenberg that he should get in touch with, with uh, Howard Ashman. And, I mean, look, I know David Geffen and Katzenberg are tight because it's the two of them plus Spielberg who created DreamWorks. Right. But I didn't know that that was how the relationship was formed and that Howard just, he kept having people in his life that were colleagues that would just like, they would, they would rally for him. You know, they would, they would put their name behind them. They would be advocates for him. And that's how he wound up at Disney. Right. And that's where I'm saying this is where he's so human because he's had a bunch of hits but now there's an ebb and flow and he's built up his network so much when really in this industry, that is what takes you far is just having people that have your back and know that you have the work ethic and, you know, they're not going to hold the flop against him because they know what he can do. And this is where it just gets so real for me because after Smile, he kind of wanted to curl into a hole and get out of town. And now you have somebody reaching out of the woodwork with the next project. And as you said, uh, it was Geffen who was the missing link that recommended him to Disney because they mention it in Sleeping Beauty, but they never say who it is. And I always thought it was probably a connection to Peter Schneider because he worked with them at the WPA. Yeah, worked on Little Shop. And now he's over at Disney. And this is where it's just funny. It just goes to show you how small the industry actually is. But... Uh, unfortunately, I think Geffen is the reason we are never going to see Little Shop on Disney Plus because it's owned by Warner Brothers. Yeah, that would make, I mean, it makes sense, right? 
Disney could always buy it. It's not stopped them in the past. This is true. Um, the if they <laughs> spent a little bit of uh, spare change on a thing called Marvel, I'm sure they could get little shot back from Geffen. Uh, what's interesting, too, is in the documentary, they show you the letter that Jeffrey sent to uh, Howard. Oh, my God. And he's giving a list of projects that we're working on, and even back in the mid-'80s, they were working on doing a Mary Poppins sequel. And obviously the writer of Mary Poppins was never going to let that happen. In fact, she not had, in her lifetime. She had gone so far as to say that while she was alive, she didn't want an American company making a Mary Poppins film. It was British only. But it's it just shows you that no ideas ever truly die at Disney. They always recycle and they come back around and... Timing is everything. 30 years later, we get Mary Poppins Returns. I think what's so incredible and yet so sad at the same time is when you hear Howard speak and when you see the footage of him in recording sessions, in meetings, or even just photographs of himself while he was working with Disney, you just see how rejuvenated he becomes right before... He gets, you know, the shocking news of his life. It's, it is that splash of cold water very, very quickly. Absolutely. But you see, it's, but it's incredible to see how uplifted he was being back at Disney as well. Because, you know, we talked about it before and they mentioned it earlier in the film that he was so excited to edit that Mickey Mouse Club scrapbook that to be back there and just like the way he talks about Peter Pan and films of that nature that he grew up on. Like I can imagine the dream come true. It must've been that now, you know, here he is going from this crash and burn that was smiled to writing songs for the little mermaid. It's incredible. And Don Han says as much that he felt like he fit in a little bit more at Disney with the animators who were just hyper creatives and, you know, they're always bouncing off of each other and trying to come up with ideas. I can imagine it was a lot more fun for him to be there than having to constantly try and prove yourself in the New York theater scene, having to constantly worry about, oh my gosh, am I going to make back the money to pay back my investors? It was probably a lot less stress. I think it was a lot less stress initially because... There were times where, you know, Disney kept him going, but at the same time, they nearly fired him because they said that he was taking too much time in the recording studio, too much time for rewrites, too much time, too much money because he wanted everything perfect. I honestly see both sides of that coin, though. I mean, when you're costing the studio money, that's a big no-no and that's going to get you in trouble. However... He can demand perfection because he's brilliant. Yeah, but I mean, they didn't. I mean, they knew he was good. I don't. He's brilliant now. You're you're talking about in the moment, but at the same time, the other side of that coin is you approached him. He didn't like come to you to get on a project. And that's what I'm saying. This is why you approach him. This is part of getting him. This is a part of his process and making this the best that it could possibly be. Let's talk about. March 3rd, 1988. He's, he's getting ready to do a workshop with Alan Menken at 
the 92nd Street Y. And he hadn't been feeling well. He was noticing white spots on his body. And this is where the movie, the documentary, I should say, really does take a violent, violent turn. Because he didn't want, he knew what it was, but he didn't want it on paper as an AIDS test because he was he was afraid he'd lose his insurance and perhaps even his job at Disney if they found out that he had this disease. Well, that was a big concern for him because he was concerned that he's making music for children's movies. It was a very different time back then and people were very close-minded and if parents found out that a gay man was writing these lyrics for the movies that their children are going to watch, not that you would ever know from listening to any of these songs, they would have, you know, it would have been, that's when cancel culture would have started back then. For sure. And he was afraid of that. He very much was afraid of that. But what I love, though, is that Disney was so accepting when they found out. When they found out, yeah. And, and in fact, not only were they accepting, but they were upset with him that he was not so forthcoming with them about it. And what did they do to make up for it? They moved production to him. You know, they valued him so much that they wanted him to be able to complete his work on these films and they moved recording to New York for Beauty and the Beast. Right. Now, just to circle back, he has this... T-cell test done and they said it comes back you know these numbers are completely plummeted so they knew right away what it was and he still goes and does this workshop and I mean you can hear it in his voice because they play the audio recording from the workshop because he's cracking jokes and he's making people laugh so he's got command of the room but you can tell that that charisma isn't quite there but I just can't get over the courage that it must have took for him to still show up with Alan Menken that night and do this workshop. Especially because at this point he does have a new partner and his partner didn't want him to go. And, you know, I think Howard's work is what truly kept him going. And and this was... This was the beginning of it. This was, you know, him doing what he loved and not wanting to succumb to the disease. It was a distraction, right? A lot of people get lost in their work, and I think that's exactly what he was doing. And it was sad how secretive it had to be, and at times how he would lash out at people, including Alan Menken. I mean, Menken tells a story once about how he, uh, Howard smashed a Walkman Pro because he was upset that the microphone didn't work very well. And and Alan thought that he was lashing out at him because he wasn't getting what he wanted out of the piano, he wasn't composing the way he wanted to. And it just seemed like a lot of people, unfortunately, because they didn't know. And, and, and that's how Howard wanted it, right? Right. They didn't know, and I think that there were times where he got branded a certain way just in regards to his attitude. And I know that a lot of people, and they, they kind of talk about it after the fact, like had they known they would have handled him differently. But at that time, they just didn't know. They thought he was they thought he was kind of being a diva. You know, I think that's what Katzenberg said at one point. When they did move those recordings, he said, I, I, I can't tell them why, so I'm going to have to make it seem like you're a diva. And Howard was kind of like, yeah, okay, 
whatever, whatever hides it. He would have rather, yeah, them thought the worst about him in that way than than find out the truth. And at that point, it's kind of funny because they do have an Oscar for Under the Sea already. And it's like, all right, well, we're moving production to the man with the gold. Yeah. So it actually was sort of as, as difficult as it must have been for him personally. It was easy to cover up. Um, I do disagree with something that you said, though. I don't think that work was a distraction for him. I think that because he's such a creative person, I think that he knew the clock was ticking and there was so much that he wanted to do and so much that he wanted to accomplish because you would think the natural reaction is would, would be for him to become a recluse and just spend what little time he has left with his partner. And he tried to, they were building a home in upstate New York that his partner had designed, but that wasn't the focus. He wanted to have, to put more work into the world. I think the, hardest part of this film of this documentary is when Alan Menken talks about the reveal after they won that Oscar for Under the Sea and Howard tells him I'm having the time of my life tonight this is at the governor's ball after and he goes but when we get back to New York we have to have a very serious conversation and Alan basically thinks well, he's breaking up with me. He's ending the partnership. He doesn't want to write with me anymore. Um, and having him having him recall that day, he said it was on a Tuesday, and, and finding out from Howard that he had AIDS and that he was sick, and that it was such a shock to Alan because Howard had done such a good job up to that point of hiding it that it's just very hard, and you can hear it in Alan Menken's voice. All of these years later, over 30 years later, it still affects him. It almost seems like it still haunts him to this day. I truly think that Alan Menken would have preferred Howard to end their working relationship if he knew that Howard was still putting work out into the world and that he was living his life happily if it meant he couldn't work with him as long as Howard was still alive. And conversely when Howard broke the news, he said, you're going to be okay. And I want you to be okay. Like that's, that's hard. That's got to be hard to swallow. It's hard. And then us as the viewer, knowing what's going to happen, because we, we know ultimately that Howard is going to pass away. We have this amazing footage of the BR guest recording session and Jerry Orbach, you could just tell, is loving every second of it. And Angela Lansbury is loving every second of it. And they all celebrate this recording because they know how good it was. But you can see between 1988, when they're working on The Little Mermaid, to 1990, in this recording session, how much Howard has deteriorated. You know, and they, they go so far as to say that when it happened gradually, you kind of didn't notice, but he looks Putting like, those two up against each other. He looks like yeah. he aged 10 years. Yeah, he gets gets very gaunt. I don't think he looks sick, but you can tell there's a dramatic weight loss. Um, 
you know, and this is the brilliance of this documentary where it really starts to toy with your emotions because this is where I get the lump in my throat every time. And you're supposed to. But you want to cry because you know what's going on in his personal life. But you also want to cry happy tears because the moment when they get Be Our Guest, this is where it is worth watching this film for. Again, if you think documentaries aren't your thing and you love Beauty and the Beast, watch for this. Because uh, they're going through the recording of the song. They're with the orchestra. You know, Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach are in their respective booths and all the musicians are there live. So they have a full take of it and they want to play it back to see how it sounds and if they should change anything. So all of the executives are in the room and they were like, let's get Angela and Jerry in here. And all of them are watching and Jerry's like, pumping his fists while they're listening to the playback and the music swells and even Alan Menken I think loses himself for a second and he's getting all excited and just to see it click amongst these people that again they they know that they have just created magic here they just know that they got it and it is my dearest wish for Disney Plus to take all of this because I know they have a lot of this footage um and do like a three-part series like the Mankin and Ashman years or something like that where we get to see all of this footage behind the scenes of them doing the music for, for these movies. Similar to when they did Into the Unknown. And this scene is very similar to when they get Into the Unknown and, and they all kind of fall back in their chairs in the studio and they're clapping and they're pumping their fists. You very much get that here. But to your point it toys with your emotions because you're so happy for them and then it's over and you realize, oh, but wait a minute. It doesn't have quite the happy ending that Into the Unknown has and I think that it's it's such a horribly sad story and the story writes itself but I think that's that's the brilliance of the documentary and the story that Don Hahn told and how he chose to tell that story. Right. And it's not just the dark cloud of knowing that we're about to lose Howard here. It's also that he's got unfinished work, which I think was his biggest fear because they started writing for Aladdin at the same time they were working on Little Mermaid. And it just so happened that Beauty and the Beast ended up coming out first. I think because the project was farther along and they had sunk so much time and money into it and they realized it wasn't going anywhere. Right. That's where Howard and Alan had to shift focus. So they had all the music for Aladdin. It almost seems like Howard Ashman pitched Aladdin to Disney because he had like a 30-page treatment and all of the music like ready to go. Um, and I feel like Aladdin was much more his baby. And that's where I get very sad is that he never got to see that completed. Can you imagine him in a, in like a recording booth with Robin Williams? It would be incredible. It would be incredible. And the Jafar song that he never got to write, that he wanted to write, he was trying to write it, it never happened. What What is interesting here, I think, is that you kind of get conflicting views on his writing and whether or not he was trying to put subtext into some of the songs a lot of people will tell you that he didn't but some of them seem like they're not so convinced that he wasn't specifically with the mob song and or with 
the Jafar song that was never finished. Um, yeah, I, I, Howard himself basically said that he was never trying to put messages into his music. He was just trying to write for story. He said he didn't like to write po- politics. Yeah, and I feel like, listen, if, if that's what he said, I'm going with what he said. For sure. But do you believe it? Yes, I do, actually. I think that he cared way too much about storytelling than having an agenda. I agree. I I absolutely agree. That was what I was going to say, is that he cared too much and worked too much in service of the story to worry about his own personal life. We heard the stories of St. Vincent's, now that we're at the end of Howard's life, where they went and screened the movie Beauty and the Beast, that is, and it did so well. And then I think Jeffrey Katzenberg and Don Hahn had gone to the hospital where Howard is blind. He can hardly speak. He's 80 pounds. Um, but to me, and I guess perhaps because we had already heard the story through Waking Sleeping Beauty, it was harder for me to hear Jody Benson talk about how she went and had her goodbye with him, and the minute she left the room, she just totally collapsed into a puddle. I mean, all of these are just completely brutal stories. I thought it was interesting that they left the New York Film Festival out of it. I kind of get why, because we've seen it already in Waking Sleeping Beauty, but it was such a triumph. I'm surprised that they didn't mention it here, but I guess... That's where it is tied more to a triumph for the animation department than to Howard personally. Howard personally, the triumph is that you got this brilliant song and you got to see, you know, it come to fruition when it was recorded. Um, But yeah, hearing, especially from Jody Benson now, you know, Howard was like her mentor. I mean, really, he's responsible for, for putting her in the spotlight and for getting her a job with Disney. And, you know, without that, I'm not going to say she doesn't have a career, but that that really is what helped her take off. Right. I thought it was interesting, too, and perhaps for the same reason, because they didn't want it to seem like they were just recycling Waking Sleeping Beauty. Right. They never mentioned that he's wearing the Beauty and the Beast sweatshirt when they go to visit him in the hospital you know, at St. Vincent's. They mention it in Waking Sleeping Beauty, but they don't mention it here, and I thought that that was sort of interesting. Right. Um, well, I guess that's it. Again, it's not about animation. This is about him keeping true. the focus on him. Let's talk about the Alan Menken dream. Oof. Does it not humanize you very, very quickly? Yes. That, to me, is in in the... Top three brutal moments, sucker punch moments of the documentary. I'm not going to say it's number one, but it's in the top three. I actually still think that that uh, that Y Street uh, or that that workshop that they did. I still think that was the toughest because he's he's coming off of that news and yet he's still trying to keep it together and do this workshop. I think that was still the toughest, but. I mean, this is up there. I won't. I won't spoil the story. Go watch the documentary. But I mean, if that doesn't leave you a puddle, I I don't know what you are. You you need to have your batteries changed. Well, what would have been worse, honestly, was hearing about Alan's goodbye and his last moments with Howard. 
I think they strategically omit that. I don't think he even could have gotten through it, to be honest, the way that he, you know, speaks about learning he was sick and he falls apart. I don't think he could have gotten through the final moments, but I feel like this is even more impactful and without spoiling it, it just goes to show how tied these two human beings are forever. You know, I think for me, as this documentary concludes, I have a lot of questions that seemingly we don't have the answers to. And that goes further than this documentary. It's just there are certain questions about his illness and 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 how how he got it and and you know because if it you know Stewart had passed away so many years prior but I think Howard's desire for privacy is what's keeping this at bay and I think the most amazing thing about that is that all of these years later it's still a secret People are still respecting his privacy 30 years, over 30 years, really, since he passed away. And people are still respecting his privacy and not putting it out there, I think, says an awful lot about him and what he meant to people. I agree, and I think that that's another success of the way that Don Hahn told this story, because I don't feel like it was invasive in any way. It stuck to the facts. I think it delved just deep enough based on what people were willing to share without violating anything that Howard would have really wanted out in the world. Um, I, I think they just did a brilliant job telling this story, and I'm so glad that they did highlight the life of a genius and that everybody can learn about Howard and fully see what his contributions were because it's not just the brilliant lyrics we've sort of been remiss talking about what he did for story just because he had such a, an amazing understanding of these musicals. There's an interview in this documentary with John Musker and Ron Clements about The Little Mermaid. And when they were working on that project, they were in their early 20s. And they brought Howard and Alan on. And even they admitted that they were learning so much from Howard about the story. And that just goes to show you what an incredible mark he left on this company because it wasn't just about his songwriting. He did so much for these stories. And, you know, when you put that up against what we learned in Waking Sleeping Beauty about how Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin are what saved this company and brought about the Renaissance... I don't think that you have this renaissance without Howard. And I think that's why it was so important for Don Hahn to tell this story. And I'm so glad that he put it out there. And like I said, you know, a lot of people find documentaries boring, but I don't think any of them on Disney Plus are because they're just so well produced. But, you know, if you truly care about this company, the way that we watch things like the Imagineering story and Behind the Attraction, I think watching the documentaries about these films are even more important if you love the company. These were really the building blocks because the parks aren't what they are today without these movies either. 
the parks don't exist without movies. That's, I think, sometimes people lose sight of that. Absolutely. Disney is not Six Flags with Mickey Mouse. Like, you know, that's, and I think people don't understand that. I think they don't understand the lineage that is the Walt Disney Company and the very important players, whether it be Walt Disney or Roy or Michael Eisner or Howard Ashman. I, I don't think a lot of people understand that it's it's not just about a roller coaster. These rides don't exist without these movies, and it's important to know that everything that you've come to know and love with the Disney parks comes from these trailblazers, right? Um, yeah, I think that these are stories that need to be told. I think it's important that if you are a fan of the Disney parks or just the Disney company in general that you that you hear these stories. I, I want to keep hearing these stories. I think that if you don't, at a minimum, get a lump in your throat, you're just not human after watching this. I mean, you, you do get that in Waking Sleeping Beauty as well when they uh, talk about the the death of Howard and the death of Frank Wells as well. And, and, and when Frank Wells died, how the car really came off the tracks at Disney because he, he really was the glue that kept the egos at bay. And once, once he wasn't there, that was sort of the end of it. Um, but you had a lump in your throat because it, it's a story of victory. It's sad, but it's a story of victory here. It's a story of unfinished business. And you know that that is such a thing that bothered Howard until the day that he passed away. And frankly, I didn't really get that the first time that we saw it. And I think part of it is because, admittedly, I mean, I liked the documentary a lot when we saw it, but I think I was just so distracted that we were going to meet Don Hahn. You know what I'm saying? Like, For it's, sure. It's sort of a stupid thing to say. And it, it's sort of a, it's a naive way of going into watching the movie. Like I did, not that I'm sitting there going, "All right, get it over with, so we can meet him." But we shouldn't have been excited at the end of the movie. Correct. It wasn't until we sat here this week to watch it, and I was writing my notes, and the note that I wrote that broke me was he wrote the stories of your childhood. That's what broke me this week was writing that note because. That was not something that I felt the first time because I think I was just too distracted. When I had no distractions and it was just us watching it at home, that's when my perspective changed. And I think that these are important stories, I, and I hope they keep telling them. I truly, truly do. I agree. You know, it's interesting the way that you said that because, like you said, you know the end of Waking Sleeping Beauty is a victory. I don't think that they did this in a way that was meant to disrespect Howard, but when you put it in that context, it was almost like he gave his life for the cause to save this company. Now that you strip away all of the business and you're just focusing on his life, it means so much more. For sure. And we're interested in knowing what you have to say about Howard the documentary, and the man. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. No news for us this week because we are going to be in the Disney park, so make sure you are keeping an eye on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, because I am sure that we are going to be posting videos and photographs from our trip, plus 
make sure you're keeping an eye on that as well because we are doing our monorail with monoreal on Sunday, November the 14th, 2021, starting at 3 p.m. at the Enchanted Rose at the Grand Floridian. And when you are not keeping an eye on that social media, because you're going to be on your phone or your computer anyway, go check out our friend Kelly over at Karma and Kismet. She's got a lot of incredible items on her website now. She's got some holiday greeting cards out. She's also got that Disney-inspired home decor, invitations if you are hosting an event, media kits if you are a content creator, plus listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I've already mentioned all of the social media. Be sure that you are uh, rating us, liking us, subscribing to us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to all of the social media, plus everywhere you can find the website and information for that monorail pub crawl as well, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.